Hi everyone, welcome back to the Quantum Heart Cafe. I hope everyone has had a blessed week and weekend and uh, I'm excited for today's show. I'm going to be, uh, like I said in my previous episode, I, I'm going to be, I've been reviewing the book The World Sensorium by Oliver L. Reiser and tonight I'm just going to be giving my uh, concluding uh, thoughts and opinions and some of what and sharing what some of uh, some of the, the subjects he wrote about in the last part of the book. And uh, before I get started, I know usually I try and post uh, a show, one show show per week, but I the last the latter part of the book just had more information. It was a bit more like technically uh, dense, if you will. So it just kind of took me a little longer to read through it. And then I wanted to um, kind of consolidate my notes into some uh, PowerPoint slides just to help me kind of keep track of my thoughts and also the different uh, subjects that he wrote about in the book. Um, so before I get started, so that's what that's, that's why I'm just a bit late. Sorry, that, that's why I'm kind of a little late with this show. Um, so I apologize for that. And then, but for before I get jump into the conclusion for World Sensorium, I do want to give a moment of gratitude. Um, uh, I'm just grateful for the the health and well being of my uh, myself, my friends and family, and uh, you know, and I could change on a dime. So if uh, you know, um, I guess this weekend I learned just to try and. Uh, enjoy the moment, enjoy the, and to make sure that I have good health because someone I know went to the hospital, uh, turned out to be okay, but, um, you know, it was a little, you know, the person was a little concerned, so they went to, or we went to emergency and, uh, everything turned out well, but it just kind of drove home to me the importance of trying to stay healthy and, and take care of ourselves, especially as we get older. Um, but I, I'm grateful that it was just a scare and, you know, it could have been a lot worse. That's for sure. So, uh, grateful for that. Okay. So getting into, oh, and of course for my, my coffee beverage, I enjoyed a little bit. I still have a bunch of the decaf because I'm, I'm doing this in the evening. So usually when I record a show in the evening, <clears throat> I'll have a little bit of decaf coffee because uh, I need to be able well actually caffeinated doesn't bother me at night um, but it is just nice just to have decaf just in case I don't want to be up all night swinging from the the roof rafters if you catch my drift <laughs> okay so um, so proceeding with tonight's show I'm going to be uh, concluding the world part three of the world sensorium uh, it's a book by Oliver L. Reiser, and it's a book that I've often heard, um, you know, someone that, whose work I follow closely, Alison McDowell, and uh, she's done a lot of research and writing on uh, Web 3.0 and uh, social impact investing, uh, human capital finance, and so on, you know, kind of what's going on right now, and she's often, you know, she often talks about this book, and you know, upon finish, as I finished reading the book, I understood why, um, it's a book Allison often, 
uh, recommends people read because it really does, or this book really did help me understand the ideology behind why uh, they're doing this and why, um, especially the, you know, the technologic companies, the scientific humanism, and, and wanting to push people towards this human 2.0 existence. It, it kind of gave the the why, you know, like the ideology behind, like, why would they want to do this? So uh, without further ado, uh, so when I left off, so if you haven't, uh, so if this is your first time listening, I suggest going back to the fir uh, first or the previous two episodes because episode one is where I started talking about the World Sensorium. Um, so if you're not familiar with the what, what I'm talking about tonight, I just recommend going back to those episodes before proceeding with this one. And when I left off last uh, during last show, it was at the the Temple of Humanity, which is a a name of uh, a section in one of the chapters in the book. And um, throughout that book and up until now, or up until that book, part of the book, uh, Oliver L. Reiser was talking about something called polarization. And it's where um, in order for a cell, like it's, it, it has its root, polarization has its roots in biology, but he uses the example of polarization to um, create a, a social analogy for people. And so the biologic, biological um, uh, kind of root, the biological root of polarization is when uh, the nerve cells, in our, well, let's say we get a cut in our hand, and the nerve cells are then uh, stimulated, they're polarized, to then grow towards the source of that stimulation um, so that they can then start to heal the hand, like create new skin cells and stuff like that. So um, he uses that, he kind of draws a social analogy with that polarization to say, you know, if you can polarize people then you can move them towards the, the uh, stimulation. Like you can move them towards, um, you know, like, like potentially accepting the planetary democracy or the, the world brain. Those two terms are interchangeable because um, he, he talks about a planetary being, uh, but then the planetary, but then he'll say planetary democracy in the book as well. And he means the same thing when he's talking about those things. Um, so in the section of the Temple of Humanity, it, he kind of con continues with the concept of polarization, and he explains how, like, metabolizing cells are irritated to create polarization, um, and again, he makes kind of a, a social analogy with that irritation, saying that you can irritate people or, you know, energetically upset people to create a polarization. Uh, that's the analogy that he was kind of going for uh, with the with that polarization. Um, and then he also believes that the rotating forces of Earth 
uh, and the world wars are breaking down society and bringing about this planetary being. So in, in the Temple of Humanity, he writes about how, um, because when he wrote this, it was sort of it was around the 1940s, so he was going through World War II at the time. And so he thought that the two world wars um, plus the rotating forces of the earth. So he says uh, in part of, of the book, when he mentions the rotating forces of the earth, he, he means that, that that rotation, he believes that that rotation creates a force that will uh, create a polarization effect on planet earth. Like uh, Later on in the book, he, mention, he mentions planetary, that the planet has its own kind of set of brain waves, and I'm going to uh, share a bit more about that. Um, but he he think he he believes that these two forces are what is going to bring about the planetary being because the world war one and two because it's breaking down society is going to enable this thing to come into existence. <clears throat> and um, he also mentions too, like just as I uh, finished talking about the planet that he believes that the planet has its own brain uh, um, brain waves like the, uh, the planet earth and he believed uh, in the book he believes that TV and radio waves are kind of acting as uh, kind of like superimposing and acting as the brain waves for this planetary being and I think that's one of the reasons why you see a lot of like the wireless radiation and the electrification of planet Earth because it's like these this electrification it's a like, synthetic it's almost like a synthetic wave brain waves being superimposed and the natural planetary waves of Earth and so this in, in order to enable this creation of a planetary being or, or world brain um, and so what happens is they create a these waves create a um, TV and radio waves create, excuse me, create a binding force and can be used to polarize people to move people towards the world sensorium. And this is really important, especially as you see more people with their cell phones and uh, OLED TVs and just anything where you can have that the, the electromagnetic waveform. Um, because as he didn't talk about the, how, because when he wrote this book, it was before the creation of LEDs and stuff like that. So he didn't really talk about, um, but he did mention, sorry, how, uh, light is a source of stimulation and how light can be a source of manipulation and, and polarization for people. Um, so, you know, it could be that the radio and TV waves and now Wi-Fi and 5G waves uh, can act as a stimulation or a polarizing force. Uh, and another one is social media. Like if you see, I'm not on Facebook anymore, but if you see social media or if you are on social media, you notice that the, the content and the stories are heavily uh, curated towards what you as the viewer like to watch. And, you know, if you're not careful, they can be stories or narratives that are triggering. And it's those triggering narratives that can create that polarization. And 
with that polarization and manipulate you or someone or whoever, anybody, myself included, so I have to be careful with this too, um, to create this like manipulation that can uh, then move us towards accepting, you know, this planetary being, this or, you know, blockchain and social impact investment and so on. So to summarize the Temple of Humanity, so according to Riser, then, or in the book, Riser quotes Dr. Rice, um, who I mentioned in the previous show, uh, because uh, all of, in the part in the book, Oliver Al Riser shares a lot of Dr. Rice's uh, letters because Dr. Rice also thought that the that we were heading towards the creation of a planetary organism, um, only that the methods were different. Like they, Riser and Dr differed from Dr. Rice and how he thinks that the or and how he thinks that the planetary being would be created but they both believe that uh, there was a potential for Earth to have this super organism and and so um, in concluding the Temple of Humanity Dr. Rice is quoted by Riser as saying that he's been thinking of a universal temple, a hookup of edifices with incense, colors, music, to soothe the senses with a radio voice that speaks to all of us. Um, Riser, he then goes on to say that Earth is the temple and the hookup being established by the emerging world mind and the radio voice is the voice of humanity vibrating. Um... Because they want us to become kind of like part of this hive, this hive mind in a way, and it would be controlled by. I don't think it's just radio waves anymore, but Wi-Fi, five G, and 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 light waves too from <clears throat> LEDs and so on. Um, in the book following this chapter, um. Uh, Oliver L. Reiser's uh, shares a section that, because he received some letters from uh, Aldous Huxley, who was following his work, and so he shared some of the content in those letters from from Huxley with the in the book, and so I'm just going to share a little bit of what what um, Aldous Huxley thought of ESP and his view of world religion. Uh, just that, because I thought it was interesting. I thought it was interesting that he, uh, Riser, included this in the book on the world uh, sensorium. Because you know, Aldous Huxley is well known for his book *A Brave New World*. Uh, I think he was also really interested in ESP and psychedelics. And same thing with his brother Julian Huxley. Um, and I think I'm going to be sharing. Uh, Julian Huxley wrote a paper. I, I began writing or reading it. Uh, not too long ago, and it's kind of disturbing. It's on uh, UNESCO, and it's more so about eugenics, but I think it's along the same lines as the this creation of a planetary organism or planetary democracy, but I'll read that on a separate show. Um, so the, these are some of the points that I thought were interesting um, about Aldous Huxley, Huxley's view on ESP uh, and religion, and then I think, and then Riser also, 
you know, gives kind of a rebuttal because he doesn't agree with everything Aldous Huxley says. But this is really important because in previous show, I did talk about how Riser, Oliver L. Riser is really kind of focused on ESP and the development of extrasensory perception because he thinks that as this emerges in people that it will lead to the creation of the world brain so uh, that's why he's really interested in ESP um, so Aldous Huxley believes that um, because Western society in general stopped believing in witchcraft uh, that people with ESP have been free to reproduce uh, and so there's more people with ESP because they're not, you know, Western society really doesn't pay attention to that anymore. It might be changing a little bit, but uh, for the most part, because they don't really, or, you know, when I say Western society, like European society, like it doesn't, um, for the most part, I think there's still some people that do believe in ESP, but I think because like witchcraft and paganism was, um, you know, kind of rooted out, especially during the, although it wasn't destroyed, but, you know, it, it was heavily suppressed from the Inquisition and so on. So the belief in witch power, or sorry, witchcraft and ESP um, went, uh, I think it went maybe underground. Uh, like people didn't really talk about it as much because they didn't want to be accused of witchcraft or being in league with the devil or any of that stuff. So, um, so that's why I kind of had you had people with those abilities kind of go quiet about it and maybe only talk about it among their relatives if they felt comfortable. Um, but because they were able to kind of be, or because there wasn't much of a belief in it anymore, they were able to um, go about having families and uh, passing along these abilities to their uh, generations. At least that's according to Aldous Huxley. Um, and then he also thought that the organic, organic unity of, in tribal people, um, fosters ESP and, um, you know, Vine, Vine Deloria Jr. in his book, God is Red, which I, uh, talked about, uh, a little while ago, kind of talks about the same thing about, like, in, among indigenous people, how, um, you'll have, like, seers and medicine men and and I think men are healing healing medicine medicine people or, or healing people within the the tribe and these um medicine uh people would uh, receive information from the spirit world which then they would pass along to the tribe especially if it was helpful for the tribe or helpful for helping to cure ailments or so on and, you know, they did have much more of an organic unity with with each other than, say, like, you know, Western society was pretty kind of pretty fractured. Um, and, I mean, Aldous Huxley doesn't say that. He uses, like, um, he talks about, like, the mystical uh, participation where, you know, indigenous people and, and you know, it used to be that way in Europe too. Like we used to have nature-based uh, spiritual traditions, and I think a lot of them are starting to 
uh, come back, like the Celtic spirituality. And uh, there's still some European countries, especially like Romania and stuff like that, that still have like it, their pagan roots. They weren't, it wasn't completely destroyed by the church. Um, but they all saw like spirit and matter as one, like they weren't separate. And they saw spirit in all things. Like, you know, it was, it's very common in Celtic spirituality to have uh, different gods and goddesses kind of represent different aspects of nature and, and different, you know, like trees and, and rivers and rocks and animals. Um, so there's some overlap with like different uh, kind of European spirituality, like the ancient spiritual traditions and some of the uh, indigenous spiritual traditions in North America because they kind of, they have similar, very similar beliefs as well. Um, so that's what, because uh, Aldous uh, Huxley talks about this mystical par participation. Any, he, he thinks it's primitive. I don't think it's primitive. I, you know, I think it, it is the natural way of being. It's just, we kind of lost, Western society has lost its way kind of. Um, but what's interesting is Riser does talk about bringing back the mind the relationship between the mind and emotions and integrating them once more so we can have uh, more instances of ESP in people. So in a way, I guess they, they're saying that, um, you know, the mystic, mystical participation isn't so primitive. Uh, anyway, so I'll keep going. Uh, ESP can uh, all just all... Aldous Huxley also thought that ESP could happen uh, with within Western society from unity, but be sporadic and localized, so it wouldn't be like a, a planetary. He didn't think it could be a, something that uh, is a or is, is a bridge towards a planetary being. He thought that if in Western society, if we do have ESP, it'd be more localized to a, a community, like a within local communities it won't be it wouldn't be worldwide <clears throat> and he also didn't think that it was a good idea or Huxley didn't think it was a good idea to have ESP as part of some central religion uh, because he doesn't believe it'll deliver human beings from their egotism um, and then he also thought that the psychic realm was an extension of reality, but it was made up of craving and egotism. Uh, he didn't think it, the psychic realm was a way for people to uh, connect with the divin, like the divine realms. Uh, and I, he got that a lot from like Eastern traditions and Hindu spirituality. I don't know much about Hindu spirituality, so I'm not going to comment on that. Um, and he also thought that uh, people should strive for ultimate reality which would transform and encourage people to act as good citizens but I don't know personally I don't see the psychic realm and spirit realm as different I mean there's di maybe different levels like I know in the astral realm there's like you know you can have some of the lower levels where like demons and dark side entities hang out but then you also have above that like kind of higher levels of the astral realm and then you also have the celestial realms where the kind of an angelic beings uh, are so maybe that's why he was trying to allude to I don't know um, 
So Riser responded to Huxley. Um, he disagreed that the psychic realm is only made up of cravings and egotism. Uh, I think that there is that there can be a unity, like an organic planetary unity, which would encompass uh, race, religion, languages, and nations. Um, and he does think that ESP, there's a biological evidence of ESP in humans. Um, and he thought that, um, he thought that there could be kind of a organic, or that Western society could facilitate an organic unity and create a social cooperation so that you could have the ESP and the world brain. So that's kind of how he differs from uh, Aldous Huxley um, and his responses. He then, go in the book, he also talks about, as I spoke about just a few minutes ago, uh, planetary brainwaves. And I thought that I would share this because I thought it was interesting and it kind of relates to the polarization I was just talking about. Uh, so Riser thinks there are planetary brainwaves that have a relation with Earth's eth eth electromagnetic field of force. Um, and so he thinks that the brainwaves act like as the world world cortex for this world brain um, and he thinks that the western and eastern hemispheres on the planet are similar to the western and like the left hand and the right hand of our brain so I, I don't know if you're familiar with biology but the in neuroscience they think that or the brain is made up of the left hand the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere the left hemisphere is supposed to be where you have like logic and you know literal like a literal um literal think thinking and and logic uh logical thinking and then the right hem hand hemisphere is of the brain is where you have the more the creative and intuitive thinking and then it's joined together in the middle and i, I can't remember what that part of the brain is called but it's joined together in the middle uh, and then the two hemispheres, you know, communicate and work together to help us functions as human beings and as individuals. Um, so he thinks that the world brain has a similar uh, anatomy where the Western hemisphere <coughs> is the left-hand side of the brain, which is the more logical side. And then the right-hand hemisphere is the right-hand side of the brain and it's the more like creative side. <coughs> So he thought that the right hand, or the the right hand, the eastern hemisphere is like the right hand side of the brain. Uh, and then he also thought that our collective thoughts of rhythmic pulsations of national identities are the brain, are the brain waves moving around the globe. So like when, excuse me, <coughs> when people. Uh, or nations are having conflict or they're migrating or moving around he thinks that this is the he's a ref or that this is reflective of the planet or the planetary the collective human human brain waves or collective planetary uh, brave waves moving around the globe i hope that makes sense um 
and he uses the analogy of a rotating armature to describe how the rotation of the earth and the hemisphere kind of produces like as a sine wave it's like um I don't know if you're familiar with electricity, but the most of the electricity that runs on if AC, like the, the outlets in your home it run in North America runs on 120 volts uh, AC, uh, 60 hertz. So what that means is that the difference between AC and DC electricity is AC, if you see it on a graph, it looks like a sine wave. So half the graph or half the wave is spent on the positive and then the other half is spent in the negative so it kind of it oscillates between negative and positive like it'll peak and it'll have a peak in the positive and then it'll uh, the wave will then start to move towards the uh, the the it'll start to move towards the negative it's hard to explain without visuals but and then, and then vice versa. So it's like this oscillating wave. So I don't know if you've ever seen those hospital shows like ER and you have like the patient hooked up to the, I think it's the East E, it's like that machine that can monitor their heart rate and you'll see the pulsating waves uh, with the different beats. That's very similar to a sine wave. So it's like the, uh, the wave is moving back and forth between the negative and positive re regions like if you think of a graph uh, and so uh, because it's move constantly moving back and forth between negative and positive it, it creates that sine wave whereas with DC it's just like a single it, the AC wave has been rectified um, and then you have like a one single line it's like if you could picture a single line moving across the horizon that's kind of like dc it doesn't really go have that oscillating effect it just it's just a single line of like maybe 24 volts dc or 12 volts dc like what you would see in a battery so it doesn't the wave doesn't oscillate it's just one one straight line it's just constant until the the battery runs out of juice um and AC waves can be generated um, using an armature. So that's why he uses the uh, example of an armature, which is creating the, the which creates an AC wave. Uh, so that's why he uses the example of Earth as an armature. And the hemisphere is kind of creating this weird uh, sine wave, but he calls it like the social thesis and the antithesis. Um, he didn't really explain it all that well, but I think it kind of, it kind of, um, feeds into that polarization where you have a negative polarized, or one group is negative polarized of people have like a negative polarization and the other group have a positive, um, polarization and they're constantly moving back and forth with each other, um, and then they're they're stimulated and they're man then manipulated to move towards uh, a certain region. Like the they'll be stimulated to move towards maybe a certain way of thinking or a certain way of doing. So I hope that makes sense. Um, 
and then he also thinks that the integration of uh, Eastern and Western culture will produce a higher level uh, synthesis for our global culture and planetary brainwave. So he's really big on integrating all all races, all nations, and language into this one global culture uh, for the purposes of the planetary being. Um, uh, so Reiser thinks that in nature uh, there's a tension between uh, facilitation and inhibition. So he, he writes about this in Globalism and, hemis and the Hemispheres. Uh, so he thinks that there, the facilitation and, and inhibition is just another example of polarization. And so he thinks polarization in society then mirrors um, in society would mirror this uh, facilitation and inhibition that he sees in nature. Um, and he thinks the polarities uh, between people are going global uh, in preparation for the emergence of this world brain. And I guess because like social, like social media I think is a real driver of polarization and because you have a lot of social media all over the world and it's and and it's being used and watched especially like YouTube and Facebook being used and watched by millions and millions of people um, I mean he wrote this in this in the 40s before social media was a thing but he felt that the people were being more polarized um, around across the globe and he thought that this was um, evidence of an emerging uh, world brain um, okay um, sorry I was just trying to uh, see if there's any more okay um, so on another part of the book, uh, Reiser was saying that he wants to create a universal culture for a free world society and that um, he feels that technology is wiping out boundaries of time and space to make this happen. Um, so and that's probably why you have a heavy rollout of technology. Um, and if you notice the cell phone commercials or any other commercials on YouTube, it talks about how it feels like there is that more push towards integration of people. Like, there's a polarization. Like, if you kind of pay attention on YouTube, you'll see a lot of videos about the the left and the right going at each other, like the, the woke and the anti-woke or... Um, feminists or anti-feminists like that there's that thesis and then there's at the antithesis right and um this polarization is in through the use of technology this polarization is it's like it's enabling this they like they want this polarization uh so they can then uh, stimulate people to move towards this a world brain and because uh, technology is so prevalent now um, 
what Oliver L. Reiser is saying is that technology is now wiping down the boundaries of time and space to make this happen and to make it happen uh, faster. And I'll get to that uh, in a minute because he thinks that the this world being can come into existence within a hundred years. He said that in the later part of the book, so I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Um, uh, and, he, and he then says that freedom isn't guaranteed by this techno, I call it the technologic, you know, barring um, some terminology by John Trudell. Because um, he, Riser doesn't talk, say technologic, I just added that in. But like, <clears throat> he was saying that, uh, Oliver L. Riser is saying that freedom isn't guaranteed um, from this technological integration he is proposing. Um he thinks it's more so a nice side blessing. Uh, and he says that we are moving toward a world federation and and that there are administrators that are needed to unite, unite people ideologi ideologically. So when he said that, I thought of maybe social media influencers and people who... Uh, have these large platforms, whether they're on the resistance or not. Um, but there's people that have these large platforms and, you know, people follow them. And, you know, they could say some pretty contra... They could easily polarize their audience um, and get them to think about and move them, manipulate them and move them towards... Um, this planetary being, this integration of uh, different cultures and nations and so on. Um, so, I don't know, this part of the book made me really think about how I interact and the content I watch on social media because, you know, I don't really want to be manipulated and pushed towards this world being. And so I, I've been really after as I've been reading this book, I've been really thinking about my place in the you know Alice McDowell talks about a labyrinth, and I'm just kind of really thinking about my place in this um at this time and and whether you know I'm being polar polarized by the content I'm watching and if I'm being manipulated to move towards a certain way and how I can be aware of the content that i'm um I'm reading and and listening to, and then he also says too, like the, you know, with this technological integration, there's no guarantee of freedom, and I think that, you know, if we're not careful, and they they roll out this world, um, you know, Web three and a blockchain and so on, like, our ability to, to live and do stuff would be severely restricted, especially for, uh, kids. Uh, Oliver Reiser then goes on to say that he thinks that uh, we need patterns for universal living and a universal ethic. Uh, he wants a planetary democracy that has a central nervous system with a world cortex for planning and synthesis. And then he also uh, quotes Julian Huxley, who is Aldous Huxley's brother. And uh, he quotes Julian and he says that uh, um, he thinks that Julian Huxley thinks that 
uh, a large organization with lots of people, uh, with lots of people is needed to superimpose uh, this world brain or this universal ethic and universal living on the primitive separate governments and their departments. So um, I thought I would include that because uh, in the book, Oliver L. Reiser thinks that the UN, the United Nations, and their programs are a really good organization for um, kind of creating that synthesis or integrating the different cultures and races. But then he also, you know, Julian Huxley does mention the government and, you know, he wants to uh, kind of unite and integrate the different government departments uh, so then that they can then act in unison and act in unity to create this world being. And then, and Oliver L. Reiser included that quote because I think that, you know, they want that world federation. So, you know, government, uh, and you can see it in your own local community, but governments and all levels are working together to, uh, create this world organism, uh, or at least according to, uh, Oliver L. Reiser. And then he goes on to talk about uh, what the world brain is. So the world brain is a collective uh, functional and social structure. Um, it has a vision capable of world, uh, of, capable of serving, of uh, planning things on a planet, on, on a kind of like organizing and planning uh, programs on a planetary level and then executing planet-wide enterprises. Um, and so the, I guess the, according to Oliver Al Reiser, the world brain will take the world federation and turn it into a super national community of friendly people. <laughs> That's what he wrote. I don't, <laughs> um, and so I guess that's his, that's the vision for this world brain is that it's able to collect data and now they have the technology to collect the data uh, and so then they can start planning um, creating these programs uh, and executing planet-wide enterprises for the benefit of this world sensorium. Um, he does talk a little bit more about the social Polarities as well in the book, and um, he was talking. He he introduced more of the dominant and submissive uh, Western paradigm, and how it's kind of related to the uh, the social polarities, where you have like I guess one group is do more thinks it's more dominant than the other group, and that kind of creates a that. A, a type of polarization which can be utilized to uh, manipulate, you know, and, and further manipulate people into uh, accepting this world brain. Uh, and he thinks that scientific humanism will introduce wisdom and, and an intelligent purpose uh, into the social polarities or the, the social, social administration. So, you know, while... <laughs> everyone's being polarized, there'll be, uh, wisdom and intelligence will be introduced to, to them through scientific humanism. 
Um, so he also talks about uh, scientific humanism in action in a later part of the book. Um, and this is actually really important. I, Because he was talking about how um, he thinks that Reiser thinks that uh, health is the best tool um, people have to move humanity towards the planetary organism. Uh, and he, he thinks that through a universal health care, that's where like the creation of the through creation of a universal health care for everyone, that's where he can push people towards accepting a planetary society. Um, and he thinks that the UN is a good organization to accomplish this. And it kind of made me think a little bit about like what's been going on for the last few years, um, with the health, health and everything like that. And I wonder if it is part of this plan to like push people towards, and I think it is part of the plan to push people towards this human 2.0 society, but it's a bit bigger than that. Like it, um, I think there's still too much focus on health freedom. I'm not saying that that's not a good, important, it is. Um, but there's this bigger thing to worry about, um, or to focus on. And so I, you know, well, health three, I think health freedom is important. I think that understanding the terrain, uh, that it's just one piece of the puzzle is also really important. Um, and then when he talks about, or when he spoke about universal health care, it made me think about Canada and how, you know, the person that really pushed for hu universal health care was a guy named Tommy Douglas. And he's considered to be one of the best, like, top uh, Canadians uh, throughout history. And what I just learned about him recently was that he was a eugenicist. And he wrote his master's thesis, I think it was his master's thesis, on eugenics. Um, I don't know if he relented, but uh, I mean, before he went on to advocate for universal health care, he was involved uh, with the eugenics movement uh, in Canada. And Canada does have a very dark past when it comes to uh, eugenics, especially Alberta, BC, and Quebec. Um, okay, and then when he was talking about, uh, when he further talked about uh, scientific humanism, he also talks about how uh, planetary democracy needs to kind of have some important modifications to it, uh, such as the socializing of industry and technology. Uh, and what he meant by that is that uh, enterprise, private enterprise, enterprises in the future, uh, they can't be just focused on profit. They also have to be focused on the good of the planetary organism. I think that's where we're seeing a lot of push for social entrepreneurship. And I, I, I'm not saying this, um, there's nothing wrong with creating a business that benefits the community, uh, as well as making, uh, some money. But, uh, what I'm saying is that, um, 
it's also used like social entrepreneurship is also used as a way to manipulate people that or to manipulate businesses to be involved in pri private and public uh, relationships whereas using public dollars to fund private enterprises and I think I feel like there's a lot of uh, relationships there with kind of like the social entrepreneurship and uh, social impact finance where you can have people trying to benefit um, a community somewhere but in the background hedge fund managers are making placing bets as to whether um, you know through the use of data like placing bets as to whether this social enterprise will work or uh, if a program will work and actually help kids like there there will be that aspect of gambling and making money off of uh, poor people involved and uh, and it's almost like those who are social entrepreneurs have to be really careful not to be uh, manipulated into doing that kind of work and if he's talking and if all if Oliver L. Reiser, who wrote this book, is talking about uh, using a sort of uh, social entrepreneurship to um, kind of, I guess, socialize industry and get to think more in terms of the acting on behalf of a planetary being rather than just making profits. Um, you know, I think it's really important to kind of be aware of that uh, so, you know, so you're not manipulated into doing something that you think is good, but uh, is actually benefiting hedge fund managers or is actually pushing people towards accepting some sort of weird planetary brain. Um, and he also thought that uh, Oliver L. Reiser thought that there should be like an institute of scientific humanism that is outside it's similar to a university, but outside of the major universities, and it's just focused on uh, gathering data and reports about, um, you know, different cultures and different uh, groups and societies, and figuring out the best way to create this planetary democracy. He didn't think that uh, universities, as they are right now, like educational institutions, sorry, I shouldn't not just universities, but he didn't think that the educational institutions were up to the task because a lot of times they're out of touch with a society where, you know, maybe you have like a group of scientists doing conducting a study on like a, a society or something, but they don't actually go out into the community and interact with people. They're kind of in their silos. Um, and then he also thought that there's too much politics, uh, too much money involved in the educational institutions. So he didn't, that's why he felt like they weren't the ones, uh, to find the administrators and people that would be willing to put their time in to create this, to gather the data and create this planetary being, um, so he thought that's why he thought an institution of scientific humanism is needed. Um, and it would be uh, kind of like a central planning agency for the means 
and media of transition towards the world sensorium. Um, it would uh, kind of create the ideology and endocrinology, ethics and psychology um, that would be needed for this creation of the world, uh, sort of the world sensorium, uh, as well as philosophy. So that's where this institution would be primarily for. Um, uh, and then he makes a quote about it in the book. He says that it is somebody's job uh, not to destroy faith, but to be educated by providing the higher forms of knowledge in terms that are intelligible to lesser evolved levels of mankind. Well, that's nice to say. Um, this implies some kind of integration of knowledge within and between um, learned professionals and uh, and also means uh, collaboration as such, such as should emerge out of the Institute of Scientific Humanism. Um, I hope that made sense, but I just kind of wrote it down from the book. But I think what he's essentially saying is that um, it would like this institution would be needed to um, provide information to people who he thinks is lesser evolved um, about this world sensorium and this uh, planetary being. And so in order to create the, he was also saying that in order to create this scientific, or not scientific, this social organism, um, the scientific humanists need to create the desire for it in humankind, um, uh, and which would then, this desire in humankind would then become like the planetary organism's head. Um, this will be like a new social organ and human beings that acts like the cerebral spinal axis in individuals. Uh, individual nations will also need to surrender some of their sovereignty and uh, start acting as if they're part of the world whole in order for planetary democracy to be successful. Um, there have been examples, and then he kind of talks about too how there have been examples of like Maybe not so so much a super organism, but like just organism type theory. Um, in history, like he talks about totalitarian uh, philosophies having this kind of super organism idea, um, as well as the Church of like Saint Paul and the Church of and the Church like back back in the day used to have like this uh, idea of like a, a unity or an organism that people were a part of and, and in that case back in history it was the church um, although if you were a pagan or if you had you know differences in beliefs you weren't really part of it they beat you into becoming part of it um, uh, Riser doesn't uh, so he goes on to say um, as well that he doesn't think that society is a social organism just yet. Um, 
but he thinks that one is trying to emerge and it's up to scientific humanism to control it. And that's also where he differs from Dr. Rice, who I mentioned earlier, who thought that we already are uh, a social organism and that we're evolving towards this super organism. So that's kind of how the two of them differ. Um, Riser uh, thinks that the morphological fields um, are going to be acting on us, on human beings, to create this uh, planetary being. So that, and that's why he thinks that with as more people have ESP, um, that's why he, he feels as if it becomes more widespread, then this planetary social organism will emerge out of that. Um, and he also thinks that the, the central nervous system out of the planetary democracy will co coordinate the individual cell colonies, so nations, races, religions, uh, towards integration for the world brain. Um, so he wants an organization that will nurture the world embryo to grow, and I think that's the Institute for Scientific Humanism. Uh, this organization will provide the morphic forces to push human beings towards the world brain, so those morphic forces would be what would uh, take the polarized people and, and push them towards world brain. Um, yeah, so th that's what, you know, these morphic forces would unify polarized people and push them in a certain direction. Um, in the book, he also talks about subjective values and objective planning. Uh, so the world brain will remind specific fields. Those specific fields are individual nations or groups. Um, so that it will remind specific fields that are more emphatic about their own values to cooperate with the whole. Um, Riser believes that the most effective organization to help with the rollout of the World Sensorium is headed by the UN, as I said before. Uh, he believes that the UN networks and principles need to extend far and wide and have more weight than the, than the military. Uh, the world brain will be superimposed on, and then the world brain itself will be superimposed on uh, individual cell colonies, which are nations. Because again, he uses a lot of like, uh, imagery, like brain brain imagery and nerves and nervous system and stuff when he talks and he creates like that social uh, allegory which is why like you hear a lot about like cells and cell colonies um, uh, so and then they will try and like integrate the individual cell colonies which are nations through control and domination um, okay, and so, and he also talked, I uh, remember how I talked about how Riser felt that the world brain could be created within a hundred years. Uh, well, I got that from the, the book because he talks about um, 
the scientific Institute of Scientific Humanism and how soon is utopia. And so that's why he thinks it can happen within a hundred years. Um, because, and the reason why is because the, there's less spatial distance between people now, you know, as we're all kind of closer together in cities and stuff. And there's more electromagnetic, uh, frequency, like EMF waves, like TV, radio, uh, planet and planetary waves so that these, these artificial waves, like from TV and radio can be used to manipulate people, um, and polarize people towards this planetary uh, democracy. And so he thinks that over the next years, 100 years, the decisions that uh, people make will take us towards a planetary democracy or planetary fascism. I don't really see the difference between the two uh, because the, you know, the powers that shouldn't be have shown how pretty corrupt they are. And so... I don't think we would ever have a planetary democracy. I don't think it's a good idea. Um, and if something were to happen, it would be more like a planetary fascism. But that's just... And that's just based on how I've seen uh, the powers that shouldn't be operate. And they're pretty selfish. Uh, Riser then thinks that there's three possibilities for the future. I happen to think there's a lot more than that. But... Uh, he thinks that the world will be destroyed or through nuclear power or we would have world fascism from all the different like <clears throat> international cartels and private enterprises. And he thinks that the third and final option is planetary democracy and that's why you know he thinks that there's a need for a planetary or he thinks that there's a need for the world sensorium because of that. Um, I think that there's a fourth way. I think that, you know, we could find, you know, as Robin, Robin Wall Kimmer wrote in her book on braiding sweetgrass, uh, when she talks about uh, being a good, learning to be a good relative. So I think that there's a, a plenty other ways that we can shape the future. I don't think it necessarily has to be this you know, destructive, a world destruction or world fascism or a planetary democracy. Um, you know, if we go down the route of Web 3.0 and Human Plus, I, I just, you know, I think it would be a pretty bleak future. Um, but we have a choice and we can choose something else. And that's what, um, that's why I, I read this book because it's, important for me to understand their ideology so that I don't get caught up in it and then it, maybe by sharing what I learned from his book maybe I'll encourage people to think about um, their own choices and rep what road to go down as well because you know again the future the universe is huge and you know they're talking about one little tiny speck of a future um, and to me it's not a future that I think is all that fulfilling to be honest I think that you know we could find uh, other ways to be in the world um, so the reason so he calls those three three possible futures of, of 
a trilemma, humanity's trilemma, and he thinks that the uh, Institute for Scientific Humanism can solve the uh, trilemma and uh, through integrating and disseminating universal ethics and principles uh, for, for humanity to follow. Um, and that's where and that's what the role of the Scientific Humanist Institute would be, is to integrate the different um, cultures and different ways of being into one universal ethic, and then just, I guess, disseminating this ideology to people around the world. I think, I don't know how that could happen or even work, but um, I think there's beauty and wisdom in diversity, and I think you know, rather than having this scientific humanism, I think there's, you know, we can learn a lot from each other and we can learn a lot when we're open to understanding other people's perspectives and other people's cultures and ways of being in the world. And that doesn't have to involve like this push to create a planetary organism or a planetary being. I think there's other ways to be, but this is his, his thoughts. And what's scary is that there's a lot of people in the scientific and business community that think a lot like him and that's why you're seeing the push uh, for a human 2.0 or <clears throat> you know this technologic world that they want to take us all down or technologic path that they want to take us all down um, so the so he also kind of created an outline for a possible program for the scientific humanism as just an example. Um, so he thinks that a small group of consultants can found the organization and that the Institute's primary interest will be the scientific impact on society and uh, correlated problems of social control of science for humanity um, using the scientific he wants to use the scientific method to solve society's ills. Um, and the uh, organization, like the consultants, they would seek out uh, research fellows who will conduct research in their fields and report back to the council via special channels of media. And uh, he thinks that the members of this organization of this institute uh, need to be philosophically minded and rise above politics, etc. Um, and that the members will investigate and create a theory for planetary democracy using science and then they will also uh, use science to bring democracy. And then, uh, lastly, um, scientific humanism as social idealism uh, more than a so he thinks that the um, kind of like the sci scientific humanism and the institute of scientific humanism will be involved in more than just creating a program for social reforms um, that he thinks that <clears throat> it will need to nurture human wholeness uh, or nurture uh, humans uh, wholeness seeking 
uh, before we can be polarized towards the human, the world brain. So what he means by that is like that. I mean, you know how you hear in the New Age community, which I think is involved in this, but you know, you hear about like the, you know, we're all one and stuff like that, and like, you know, under it all, we're all the same, we're all related, and um, that's kind of like that. Uh, alludes that kind of alludes to this that human wholeness that he talks about uh, how that needs to be uh, nurtured so that um, we can then be polarized towards uh, the world brain and so uh, to conclude the book he says that um, scientific humanism and planetary democracy then will go hand in hand so <clears throat> that concludes the world part three of the world sensorium um i try to take as much information out of the book and what i thought was interesting and important and share it tonight so i, I hope you got something out of it and better yet i hope that you will be uh, interested in reading the book funny enough um Alison McDowell did a has been doing a read out loud of the book so I'll see if I can um, I'll ask first to see if I can uh, post a link uh, in the description so if you want to uh, listen to the book uh, you can go to her YouTube channel and you and she you can listen to her uh, I think she's done a part one and a part two I'm not sure how far along the book she is right now but uh if you want to uh do like uh, be part of the read out, out loud and learn more about the book and about this ideology i highly recommend uh checking out her, her channel so i'll see if i can uh post a link in the description if you're interested and next week so i did say i was gonna maybe take a little bit of a break and and talk about something that's a little more or read a story that's a little bit more, um, like it still relates to what the overall theme of my uh, show, but it's a little more lighthearted and it's not as heavy. So I'm going to be talking about, um, I started reading the fourth book in Madeline Ingalls uh, time series, uh, Many Waters. And in this book, it focuses more so on the two brothers, uh, Denny's and Sandy. And uh, they go f for their own adventures. So it's not Meg and Charles, Wallace and Calvin in this story. This time, uh, it's Sandy and Dennis. And Denny's who, and they're Meg and Charles's brothers. And they're going on an adventure which involves Noah's Ark and Seraphim and Nephilim. And so I'm going to give my thoughts on that book next week. And so far, it's been a really interesting read. I started reading it. Um, so I'll share that book next week. So it's something that'll be a little more lighthearted. And then after that, I did get the book, uh, Worlds in Collision. Uh, it's in the, it's on its way. It's in the mail. So I'll be reading through that one, uh, following this book, uh, Madeline Ingalls, uh, Many Waters. Uh, and so with, without, uh, further ado, I hope everyone has, uh, enjoyed tonight's show and that you learned something from it and that you'll be curious to read the world sensorium it's a really important book really important to understand 
the ideology and thinking behind what's going on right now. Um, and I hope all of you have a blessed week. And thank you for stopping by the cafe. Bye-bye.